This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, I welcome an artist that plants his flag at the center of art, nature, and science. He works with reclaimed organisms and natural elements to create breathtaking museum exhibits by transforming exotic insects and tropical sea creatures into astounding works of art. He shares what it's like to grow up with his dad's dead birds in the freezer next to his popsicles. What he now keeps in his many freezers around the world and how important lighting is to displaying elements of nature. Coming up, New York Times best-selling author, artist, and designer, Christopher Marley. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. Happy to be here. Thank you, Pat. Now you're going to be dealing with a human today. Is that going to be awkward for you? It is a little awkward, yes. And uh, I will put away all my formaldehyde so that you don't need not fear for your safety. I find that humorous, but at the same time, it's one of those questions people must wonder. <laughs> now that you're an acclaimed artist, it's all cool that you have freezers full of creepy things. But when I was dating, it was a little different. <laughs> I imagine that's the thing. First of all, at this moment, how many freezers do you have? I have, I think in this studio, 10 that are overflowing. I can barely, oh. barely close them with specimens and, and thousands and thousands of, of specimens, those freezers. And then I have a studio in Kuala Lumpur as well. And I've got another, I don't know, uh, hundreds of thousands of specimens of that. In okay. That so tell me just a quick sampling of the various sea creatures <laughs> and things. What? No, what kind of organisms, like, and are they, is it labeled like, <laughs> is this the isopod freezer and this is the... I, I am, so I am horribly, if you could see my desk, I've tried to make it so you can't. I am horribly disorganized person. I'm a, a totally scatterbrained. And so, no, I generally have a bird freezer, I have several bird freezers. I've got uh, reptile freezers and I've got uh, shark and cephalopod and other types of sea creature freezers and a couple of different fish freezers. And anyway, it goes on forever, but... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting things there. Recently, I was able to acquire a probably about a seven foot long lizard that was and probably weighs about 75 pounds. Wow. From a, actually a fairly local guy here that had raised it from baby and it, it, it eventually died. And so it, it, it can be anything. If you open those freezers, it's a Pandora's box of weirdness. I bet. And you just mentioned that a guy had called you on that. So you have a syndicate right. of people with animals that have died that are in good shape yeah you know it's funny when this started actually it all started the vertebrates i mean i started collecting insects 25 years ago but the vertebrate side of it really started with my dad who's been a funny little bird breeder guy this is a hobby uh, he was an insurance you know owned an insurance company and he's just been passionate about raising rare color mutations of australian parrots his entire life since he was a little kid i have no idea why <laughs> um, so, you know, growing up, we always had, there was always dead birds in the freezers and I never even, to me, it was normal. I never understood right. why or never thought to ask. Probably about 15 years ago, you know, I was up at his aviaries. He's got freezers now and the aviaries, which is nice because the dead birds aren't mixed in with the popsicles. You know, I was opening his freezer, just kind of reflexively looking for something to eat. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, there's always birds in there. I kind of asked him, yeah, why do you always have dead birds in your freezers? You know, it's the first time I thought to ask it in my entire life. How, by the way, how old were you at that time? Uh, I was probably 40, 38, 40, late 30s, 40. <laughs> That's a long time to give your dad a pass on dead birds in the freezer. <laughs> well, it more speaks to the fact that I thought it was so normal. I didn't even think to ask. 
And so, so you know, he said, he just kind of looked sheepish. He's like, well, I don't know. I don't know what to do with them. I mean, they're not garbage. And I thought, well, geez, I wonder if he's the only weirdo who does this. And it, it turns out he's not. Every person I have interacted with that, that, that works with organisms that have dedicated their life to husbandry, when those organisms pass, they don't know what to do with them. And they can't, I mean, they can't bear to just throw them away because they're not garbage. They can't, but they don't have any use for them. And so I started kind of really pounding the pavement about 15 years ago and just hitting up every institution, every breeder, every individual, every importer, everybody I can find that, that works with organisms. And found that most of them just happened to have a freezers, you know, full of the specimens they've lost over the years. Oddly enough, uh, a lot of the reptile people would look at me like I was some kind of a freak some kind of a weirdo and i'm like well, you're the one breeding venomous snakes for a living give me a break <laughs> and then uh and then uh, you know but the, the bird people have been fabulous they just want something beautiful to be, to be made some way to preserve the, the beauty of these organisms I, I just want to kind of take this back to your dad and his saving the birds did he ever have a plan to do something with them before you became an artist and and, and did this and somehow inspire your idea of reviving them and putting them in this beautiful artwork was there a connection between those things no that's the funny thing is it's almost like he just needed a, a morning period because they would go in the freezers they would stay there for i don't know uh weeks or months and then they would be thrown away eventually it's almost like there just needed to be some degree of separation from this thing that he loved and this thing that he worked to give a happy life to and then its final disposal so and i think that's really common Okay, I understand. I know there are scientific reasons why organisms are kept around for a while. There's usually, I mean, institutions will often do necropsies to figure out, you know, what the problem was, make sure there's not some kind of a microbe or some kind of a infection that could spread to other organisms or whatever. I mean, there's, there's reasons. But generally, what I've found is that it's very common that there needs to be some, <laughs> some time of mourning, I guess, to be able to let those organisms pass from their heart. Because most of our listeners are probably coming into this not knowing what we're talking yeah. about, I will encourage them to pause and go to your Instagram or Google your name, Christopher Marley, and get a quick look at what an amazing array of organisms you work with and how you display them. And, you know, that way they can come on this ride with you and I. <laughs> right. I appreciate that because it's it's very hard to describe what I do. And it, I still struggle with it. After 25 years, I don't know how to really explain it in a way that doesn't sound just either macabre or pokey or ridiculous. Well, it, here's what's amazing about it, though. Instantly, when you see it, you see one image or all the images and a big display, it's overwhelmingly intimate with nature. You use a lot of different artistic skills. Clearly, you're a guy who knows composition and design and the way you pose the animals and the way they interact with the other. But the idea that we can be this close to something, and it's not taxidermy. I think it's important right. that they know that you're not skinning things and putting them on some other structure. Right. This is the full organism. Yeah. And I guess I would just turn it over to you to tell me a little bit about the process. And I'm sure it's different for different kinds of species. But how do you get this not only to be so lifelike, but how does it maintain its life under in the frame? Really, it's been 25 years of trial and error, lots and lots of error. Um, I am, full disclosure, just a terrible student. So I, I didn't finish college, I, but I have an opportunity to work with something new. It, it honestly just never even occurs to me to go and you know Google it or find a book and find out how other people are doing. I just get in and get my hands dirty. And it makes for a very long and arduous process. 
But one of the few perks of being a terrible student is that you discover things once in a while. Most learning is linear. You know, we can jump on the shoulders of whoever's done it before and we, you know, develop our own way of doing it. <clears throat> when you start from scratch, just trying to kind of figure it out, you can go off into some little rivulets that are that haven't been tried before. And so I think that's part of the reason why, for example, my cephalopods, my squid and octopus uh, in particular, are they're they're pretty amazing. I don't I've never seen them, I've never seen them preserved uh, that well anywhere in the world, in any institution. And actually, I've had heads of biology from Ivy League schools call me and say, okay, well, how are you doing this? Come on. <laughs> you know, which has been really fun. But just to be able to kind of go, well, you know, I just, well, I actually don't even give them my secrets because I feel like they've got enough resources to go figure it out themselves if they can. <laughs> but, you know, but for me to be able to just get hands on, get your hands dirty and just try things. I've been able to come up with a few little tricks that have been really, really fun. And to me, it's a little bit... Um, it's important to use the entire organism whenever I can. There's one exception, really only one exception, where I don't use the entire organism, insides, outsides, everything. That is with hookbills. So with, with hook or parrots. Because most of what I do is wall art. Parrots have kind of their face on the ventral side of their body. You know, if you see a parrot flying overhead, it looks like he's what we consider a face, and his eyes are looking down. And so if I'm doing the dorsal view of a bird with his wings spread, his tail spread and everything perfect, it looks like he face planted into the back of the frame. It just looks terrible. Just for aesthetic reasons, I used to use the wings and tail of a lot of parrots in some presentations because I'm not trying to create some reproduction of an idyllic natural scene. I, I'm not bound in those ways that taxidermists might be. What I want to do is get people to focus on the aesthetic properties of organisms. Though it's somewhat incongruent with the way that I normally use the entire organism, it's not incongruent with my objective to get people to fall in love with the aesthetic properties of organisms as an entree into loving that entire organism. The colors you work with, I mean, or maybe it's just by nature, the perfect colors that these insects and these birds come in, but they are so vibrant. There's so much expression and almost unnaturally Colorful, right? right? The way Kodachrome slides were when I was a kid. <laughs> That's right. It's like, that isn't the real red. <laughs> That's you know? right. Yeah, it's really incredible. It, it's amazing to be able to see colors in nature. It's, it's funny how kind of subconsciously, I think that we're such a, an artificial oriented society that we think that we've invented these, these vibrant, insane colors, but we have. They exist in the natural world there. And, and oftentimes they're in closer to the equator where and in areas where there aren't a lot of people to be able to enjoy them. But being able to show off those colors is something that really thrills me. That's a tool to be able to get people more and more passionate about the natural world and more and more passionate about their own creativity. And that's something that those two, there's a real relationship between nature and creativity that's really only now being starting to be explored seriously in the in sociological circles. Well, the power of color is amazing. We did talk to Pixar chief creative officer, Pete Doctor, who talks about what they do when they choose colors emotionally in filmmaking. There was a poet, an essayist named Lee Hunt, who said that colors are the smiles of nature. <laughs> I love that. Which is really amazing thing because it, you can't not look at certain colors and it does, it impacts you emotionally. It does. It does. And one of the most, one of the most impactful walls that I do in my full exhibits, and that can be up to 
uh, 13,000 square feet is the largest we've done. But I'll do all these walls of these color studies of different types of organisms. Maybe I'll do all yellow organisms and all orange organisms, and all red organisms. It's just so fun to be able to show people how, you know, how you can color coordinate like that and then do a huge wall of black and whites. It's really an impactful thing to be able to, to see how stark and how we respond to it in a completely different emotional way. It's almost like subconsciously you're searching for this color, but because it's not there, you're able to focus in on texture. You're able to focus in on composition. You're able to focus in on different elements of that organism that color generally overpowers. Some of those beetles, those they're chromatic, iridescent beetles. Yeah. I guess that nature has created something that they're either used for attracting or repelling other species. It's a real mystery in, in many instances. For example, the jeweled scarabs in Central and South America they, they look like chrome or solid gold or solid brass. In fact, there's hardly a, a metallic sheen that doesn't exist in jewel scarab form. It's amazing. And no one really knows what the point is. I mean, they're obviously not trying to blend into anything. I mean, you know, they're trying to blend into 1957 Cadillac bumpers or something, who knows? But it's odd that these exist. And there's people opine that they're trying to replicate a, the shine of a dewdrop. Who knows? But a lot of this is really a mystery. There doesn't seem to be any practical purpose for looking like your burnished gold insect. Unless you want, you think if I look like a rivet, nobody will eat me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Like I, I fell off of a spaceship or something. <laughs> I'm curious about how the organisms influence the outcome of the art, meaning you're collecting and collecting and collecting. So it must be, I now have enough of this color or enough of these things, or I lay them out like... What day is octopus day and what day is beetle day for you? <laughs> well, you're right. You're right. There is a lot of waiting around for things to arrive. Like I said, I've worked with different types of individuals and institutions and, you know, things die sporadically. And so I never know what I'm going to get. There's a good example. I did a one big turtle piece, well, turtles and tortoises, that has about 350, I think, specimens in it. And I, and I had an idea of what I wanted to do, but I probably had to wait five or six years before I had the accumulation of enough organisms to really make that piece work. And so oftentimes the organisms inform the design or inform the composition, but sometimes I have something in mind and I just have to wait until the right uh, opportunity presents itself. Well, two things occur to me. One, you're nature's funeral director. <laughs> I'm going to quote you on that one. No, I was at a funeral home conference or something that I was speaking at, which is not the greatest place for a comedian. But what was fascinating is that they said their job, that their business is 24 hours, 365. They don't know when people are going to die. Somebody lives in the home of the funeral home and their customers only come when they're dead. I have a friend who's a funeral home director and it's an odd occupation, but yeah, we actually trade, we trade secrets <laughs> and give each other little tips on <laughs> on how to do our job more effectively. He has some tips on chemical preservation for you, right? Oh, he absolutely does. But we have different objectives. I mean, he only has to make things look good for a week and I've got to make them look good for a hundred years. So yeah, we have different objectives, but I've definitely got some good tips from him and I don't know if he's benefited much from me. Well, that also makes me wonder about when you do and you don't have to give away your freeze drying tips or anything, but how is it that this is now on my wall and then on a sunny day, it's not dripping out of the back of the frame? You know what I mean? I'm not being a glib. I'm just saying, how do you make this for a hundred years? How do you keep this thing looking like it just was born? Yeah, I started with uh, insects and anything with an exoskeleton is a lot easier to preserve. 
preserved than something that has a, an endoskeleton, something that has their skeleton on the outside. And, you know, when we die, we shrivel up and, and we look horrible, but our skeleton looks fabulous. And when your skeleton's on the outside, I mean, the insides are gross, but the, but the outside looks the same. And so really, uh, I started out with this kind of easier uh, objective. And what I discovered was that hermetically sealing those organisms, as long as they're properly dried, once they're hermetically sealed, you are, you're blocking off the ability of those tiny organisms, sometimes microorganisms, sometimes book lice or carpet beetles, or little tiny creatures that are everywhere. You don't notice them, but their job is to clean up organic matter. And they love nothing more than a dried insect. And so being able to make a, just a physical barrier for them to not be able to get in and infest that or that, those, that composition is really the main key. And so from a pretty early age, I realized that I had to have a hermetic seal on all of these pieces. And that is a big step towards keeping them preserved forever. What else are, is in your daily use toolkit? There's different chemicals that I use a lot of. I use a lot of acetone. I use a lot of different preservatives, some taxidermy tools that are useful in loosening up a specimen, not so much in preserving the specimen. I use freeze dryers. I use different types of irons. I use different types of dyes for fish and for some reptiles. Oh, most of the tropical fish and some of the reptiles, there has to be some color restoration because there's just no way that I've been able to find to set those colors. And so unfortunately with color restoration, they're never gonna be as vibrant as they were when they were alive, but we get pretty close. And so that's the only organisms that require any restoration for me. You know, all the birds, the feathers preserve quite well. I use museum glass that filters out all 100% of UV rays and that helps those organisms to maintain the color for a longer period of time. Basically the areas where people are most incredulous are the areas where there's absolutely no need to restore color at all. So you're a photographer as well. How important is lighting to displaying these and to making this happen? It feels like light impacts how the color comes back at you. Well, I guess there's two answers to that question. One, when I'm when I'm shooting, I am a, really a mediocre photographer, <laughs> in spite of somehow getting a New York Times bestselling book for my photography. I really only know how to shoot one thing, and that's my work. And I've learned how to light it as flat as I possibly can, so that there is uh, there's no direction to that lighting at all, and there's enough light to be able to bring out that color. And so as long as you have accurate Kelvin and you've got a flat enough light that you're not seeing reflection, it's a big problem. It's like shooting a diamond. I've tried to shoot minerals and my mineral photography is horrible. I don't know how those guys do it. You know, when you're shooting something that is semi-translucent, something that is iridescent, you've got real issues with the subject matter that's fighting back with the camera. And you end up with hot spots. You end up with all kinds of problems and trying to capture that saturation of color. And so I've learned how to do that. Again, just trial and error. But the other problem is that when I go into a museum and I'm installing a museum exhibit, museums almost universally are specialized in having this dramatic lighting. And this dramatic lighting is horrible. For example, an iridescent beetle. An iridescent beetle in order to see their color, if you put a spot on it, you're going to get one ridiculously bright, shiny spot. The rest of it, because of the microstructures of the, the structural coloration of that organism, is going to cast shadows on itself and you get virtually no color. So what I've started doing is creating pieces that have internal lighting where I can get as close as I possibly can within a frame to be able to light it with a diffused flat lighting that I need to be able to show up those colors. And those are some of the most impactful pieces in the exhibits where people are able to see something that's lit properly that has probably never been seen in a museum because museum lighting is dramatic. And that's been really fun to see people, just their eyes just pop with colors that maybe it's even organisms they've seen before, but they've never seen the color 
that exists in those organisms. And that touring museum exhibit is the Exquisite Creatures exhibit, right? Yes. I've done a couple of different iterations of Biophilia exhibit and the Exquisite Creatures exhibits are, are what I go on touring now. How many organisms travel in that? How many images or pieces are they looking at? Generally, I design the exhibit for each institution, and generally I will have between about 6,000 and 13,000 square feet of space to fill in. And so uh, the pieces will be anywhere from 350 pieces to 700 pieces that go into that exhibit. And then the specimens, tens of thousands, if not more. Well, Einstein said, if you look deep into nature, then you understand everything better. And I feel like that's what's happening when somebody gets close to one of your pieces. Who's going to see that many little octopuses and all the detail? I mean, it's so lovingly done. I don't even know what to say about it. You know what I mean? You know, that's an interesting quote. I've never heard that before. But it actually brings to mind another aspect of this work that, again, has been something that I've kind of serendipitously discovered. Other people are working on it more intensely. But that is the connection between immersion in nature or exposure to nature and creativity. And so seeing things more clearly has actually been recently scientifically proven because of the natural world. And so there's an interesting study that was published a couple years ago in, in a scientific journal called Plus One, where they took a group of people and they gave them uh, creative problem solving tests. And then they took away their phones, they took away all their technology, and, and they gave them an opportunity to be immersed in nature for four days. And after four days, they came back and took similar problem solving tests. And their ability, their creative problem-solving abilities increased 50% in four days just because of their immersion in nature. And, of course, the corresponding absence of technology. But the point is that when we find uh, ways and opportunities to connect with the natural world, it actually changes the way we see reality. It changes our ability to creative problem-solve. It changes our ability to, see, to find beauty, to find inspiration. It's literally restorative not just figuratively restored, but our brains actually get restored as we become immersed in the natural world. And I haven't seen anyone do any kind of studies about methods of immersion or about specific types of connection, because I'll be honest, for me, walking around in a, in a park or even a forest trail, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't do that much for me. I need to be hands-on. I need to be handling nature. I need to be, I need, you know, when I am in my studio and I'm up to my arms in organisms, something happens in my brain where I am able to be more creative and more happy than I would otherwise be. And so there's some room for someone out there who, who studies these types of things to start identifying, pairing people with their specific, most effective types of connection to nature. I think that would be worthy of study. But I do know that immersion and exposure to the natural world increases our creativity. It restores our minds and our, and our physical brains and makes us capable of seeing reality a little more clearly. There is no doubt it's therapeutic because it's the very thing of why people have animals that are soothing them, all of those kinds of support animals. It is all parts of nature. I had a conversation working with an AI company and everything was futuristic and everything was about the technology. And I kept saying to them, the technology is all based on nature's order. Let's not forget that the human eye is what's informing the film camera. It all kind of goes back to things that are perfect in nature, which you see in fruit, which you see in animals. A banana peel is protecting that fruit after thousands of years for some reason, right? We don't know why, but it's just enough that a monkey can still open it and eat it. You know what I mean? They, doesn't, they don't need a can opener. That's a great example. And, and honestly, I've really been fortunate to be able to work with some of the leaders of design and some of the leaders of some of the biggest apparel company in the world, for example. And they universally, when I've been able to rub shoulders with some of the people that are really at the forefront of design and technology, they really appreciate 
and they understand that connection. The wisest designers are deriving their inspiration and their ideas from what's already going on in the natural world. We're wise if we look to nature as much as we can for sources of inspiration for creativity. I read that you said the aesthetics of nature is the rhythm that we move to as human beings. Can you explain that a little bit more to me? Yeah, I think that it's interesting to think about the cause and effects of why we find nature beautiful. Whether we find nature beautiful because it's a part of us and we are naturally prone to find ourselves somewhat attractive or whether it's something else. But I think that the greatest entree that we have, or at least in my work that I have had to be able to get people interested in the natural world is the aesthetics of nature. To me, there's a huge segment of population and increasing segment seemingly in these days that is very technology centric, that is very urbane, that is little less concerned about what's going on in nature. And to me, I found that the most powerful tool of getting people drawn in is not necessarily the life history of this organism or even the guilt trip of they're all gonna be gone if you don't do something. It's let me help you find this organism beautiful. And when you find it beautiful, you fall in love with it. When you fall in love with it, you want to know about it. You care about it. You want to conserve it. You want to help. You, you want it to be a part of your life. And that's something that has really been meaningful to me in more ways than I would have anticipated. And I've just been so grateful for that opportunity to kind of make those connections. That reminds me of the movie, My Octopus Teacher. Did you see that one? Yeah, I did. It blew my mind because I thought, why am I so fascinated by this relationship and this man's draw to go back and be there and check on it and do every day to see what was going on. But again, it's the same kind of idea that you're saying, which is we do see a reflection of ourselves in it. You're using life sciences as a storyteller. The way you lay it out and the way you pose it, you're telling a story. And it is, I guess, up to the viewer to take that away, right? To figure out how they want to explore that story further. I think so. Frankly, that movie's a great example. And I think it's much more common than we think. I interact all day long with people that you would never know about or hear about that have really beautiful, intimate interactions and relationships with a particular segment of the natural world that is, for whatever reason, it's the one that they are dedicated to. It's the one that spoke to them. It's the one that brings them to life. And it happens all over the world. But again, what I found is that for those people that don't have that connection and don't have that relationship already burgeoning or developing, being able to find something beautiful is the fire that starts that engine and starts that relationship going. And you're talking about all around the world. I know that you have a studio in Oregon and one in Kuala Lumpur. So the draw to that specific location must be access to forests and jungles. And it is part of it is practical. I've got a buddy there who's just a gem of a guy and I've worked with him for 20 years now and I just love him to death. And so we're like brothers and we spend a lot of time together, but he runs the studio there and we're right in the middle of everything. There's, I don't know, 17,000 Indonesian islands. There's tens of thousands of Philippine islands. There's Borneo, which is part of Malaysia. There's a camp there that some of our friends run. Somehow they were able to uh, secure a long term lease of 10 acres in the middle of Truzmati, which is a relatively unexplored national park in Sabah, Borneo. And so they've set up insect light traps up and down this entire mountainside. And you can go there all night long and look and see what insects come to the lights. And it's just nirvana. It's absolutely paradise to go and watch and see it at different altitudes at different times of day, what species are coming. And in that particular camp, in the last two or three years, I think there's been somewhere around 300 new species discovered in that one camp, almost exclusively by amateurs, by just enthusiasts. 
that's one example of how just your average Joe who doesn't have the ability or the opportunity to make life sciences their life's work, they can still make a difference, how they can still have this wonderfully nurturing experience with nature and anybody can do it. So it's really fun. How much of your time do you spend out in the field in a year versus studio time? You were probably out a, a much more adventurous guy when you were younger and making connections. That's exactly right. And then COVID has just destroyed travel around the world. It's just been horrible. So the last couple of years, I haven't gone anywhere. Anywhere noteworthy. And the other part is that there's a business aspect to it. And so as we've started working with museums, boy, it is really time consuming. I've got four museums I'm talking to this week, and each one of them will send me a blank floor plan. And I, that's all I start with. And so I start drawing the walls. I start drawing the stories that are going to be told, the writing the text, the photography, the music, the films. I do it all. And so it's a ton of work and it just is really cut into being able to get out into the wild and have that renewal myself. Like I said, I'm a big hypocrite and I need to, <laughs> I need to practice what I preach an awful lot more. What is the most ambitious artistic project that you've undertaken? That's a tough question. There's been a number of pieces that I've created that have been huge in scale. And so scale always makes things, you know, you're working with 300 organisms in one piece. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things that have to go right for that to work. Probably a piece that I was commissioned a couple of years ago was probably the most ambitious. It took most of a year and it contained probably four or 500 different beetles and butterflies and just the most iridescent, beautiful insects from all over the world. And it was internally lit. It was a huge piece and it was a giant circle of mosaic of insects. I think I've got images of it on Instagram, but that one was really, really good. So that was one. But I guess it's one thing to compose a piece, which can be challenging and rewarding. And then to compose a wall of pieces is, you know, a completely different ballgame. And then to compose a room with those walls of pieces that are all in conjunction telling a story. And then to compose an entire exhibit of, you know, 10,000 square feet or whatever. It's daunting, but it is so fun. It's so exciting and rewarding to be able to tell those larger stories. And, and I feel so fortunate and so blessed to be able to do it because not many artists have the opportunity to kind of compose on that scale. And it's really fun to be able to tell those larger stories and to be able to bring in so many different elements of music and of video and of all different, all different elements to be able to stimulate all the senses. It's really fun. It's powerful to hear how passionate you are about it. I want, just for the other creative folks that listen, I wanted you to take me back to when you made the leap I know that you had worked as a model and you had worked in the fashion industry. When did you make that leap where you said to yourself, I could do this all the time, whether I make money or not, here's when I'm going to change horses. It was a long process. I would say that leap was probably at least five years in the making. And so what happened was I'm just riddled with ADHD. And so I, I can't pay attention to anything. I'm, I'm the worst tourist on the planet. And I think I lived and worked in 30 countries before I took pictures in my first and I didn't have a single picture to show for anywhere I'd ever lived or worked. I never went to see any of the tourist attractions. I lived in Greece, for example, in Athens for six months and never went to a single island. I was just working the day before I left. I said, well, I better go through the Acropolis, which was two miles away. That kind of a horrible American tourist. But the thing I always did do was I would take taxi down to the end of the line and just jump out and go off in the forest looking for lizards and snakes was generally what I was doing. <laughs> but insects became the thing that I collected in different countries. It was just a hobby. I've always been a collector. And so I just started collecting insects. And that was kind of my only representation I had besides jam-packed passports of the fact that I traveled around. And so I was living in Los Angeles and I just kind of got the idea, you know what, my specimens are all in trunks or boxes and I want to break them out and I want to scrape them out and see what I can do. I didn't know the first thing about working with dried insects and broke everything I touched, but I wanted to make something for myself, you know, for the kind of a representation of my travels on my wall in Los Angeles. And boy, it just became the most rewarding artistic experience I'd ever had. And I'd always been a drawer and a painter and I'd always been involved in art. 
but that was it for me. And so I began to be this nutty collector of insects wherever I could find them and creating art for myself. And then, I don't know, friends would come over and people would see it. They'd think, oh, this is the greatest thing in the world. This could be business. And I'm like, here, you're mine. He's going to buy my dead bugs. Come on. And yet I was encouraged enough that I finally had an opportunity with a little, probably 150 or 200 square foot little space in Hermosa Beach, California on Beer Avenue, right next door to the hottest restaurant in town. The, the city wouldn't let them expand into this other space. So it would just sat there empty. And I knew the guy who owned the restaurant. I said, hey, let me borrow that for, or let me rent it for a couple of months before Christmas. And I'll see if anybody wants to buy my little bug creations. And he did. And we ended up staying there for a couple of years. And from there was the beginning of starting to work with designer showrooms and starting to create things wholesale. And we started working with all the biggest high-end retailers in the country, Saxon Avenue and Barney's and Neiman Marcus and Bergdorf Goodman and Williams Sonoma. All of them. We worked with all of them over time. And so that was kind of the first iteration of what was my business. From there, really after about a decade, decade and a half of that, it became unsustainable. We would literally have Neiman Marcus call and say, okay, I want 100 of these and we want 500 of that. And you don't understand how this works. It became really unwieldy and it became really unrewarding. And I really became a designer of product as opposed to an artist. And I just about five or six years ago decided, you know what, I'm just going to back out of it. And I had no idea what I was going to do, how it was going to work, but I started making things that were meaningful to me and started taking these organisms, doing things to me that were more poignant and significant and had a story and had a reason and had a feel to it. And I just was able to amass uh, enough work to be able to start writing about it, to shoot it in a different way and start reaching out to museums. And miraculously, they were interested. Well, I think that's actually quite a good journey for people to look at or reflect on because it did start with passion. When you laid out those first insect collages and you had an aha, that you were in love with that picture to put on your own wall. So sometimes we do get to where the business drives the art and then it becomes an industry that you don't want to work in. And yet the pandemic has showed all of us, I hate the word pivot particularly because it feels like you're spinning in a circle on one foot, but you do have to be flexible and nimble enough to say, what is my purpose? What is my passion? Where does it belong? Is there another form it can take, right? So you moving into museum exhibits and private collections and things where it still comes from an interior love and expression is ultimately what art is all about. I feel like creativity is sort of the fuel of it, but the art is the expression. It's sort of the end game of where you pass the conversation off to the viewer. Honestly, I think that there's this idea of the crass commerce of art. But, you know, I mean, artists have to live. They've got to do something. And for me, I was always a risk taker. I would buy a one-way ticket to a country I didn't know a single person in and just think, oh, I'll figure it out. And I was comfortable with that. But boy, after having four boys and having mortgages and having a wife and having people who want to eat, who depend on me, you start worrying about taking these leaps and not really having a plan. And so... I think in addition to what you said, there has to be an element of risk. Sometimes the riskier the venture, as long as it's a good calculated risk, the higher the rewards and the greater the possibility of something beautiful is going to come out of it. Well, the more risk you take, the less risk it is because you start to experience the idea that the reward outweighs the risk. And I say that from a context of somebody like Warren Buffett, who invests in all kinds of things. For you and I to throw our money into the market on something, it's a complete crapshoot. But he looks at a business, a giant thing, and he puts a billion dollars into it. It's not that risky when he says, oh, I know what the management does. I know what the product is. People are going to keep buying toothpaste. This is a no-risk situation. And I feel like the same happens for us as artists, which each time you take a leap and you make a forward movement, you go, oh, this is what I meant to do. The guy who knows how to walk across a tightrope doesn't care if he's 2,000 feet or two feet off the ground. It's the same idea. Look at the destination, make the cross, right? 
Totally agree. A big part of that also is we become more and more adept at making good calculated risks as opposed to just throwing something at the wall and hoping it sticks. Did you say you have four boys? I do. Okay. So you're the dad now with many more freezers and many more birds. Do they disassociate with you or are they another future set of creeps? It's astounding. I can't get my kids interested in anything I do. It blows my mind. I'm exactly to them what I was to my dad. It's hilarious. I think my dad thought, I'm doing, I'm a pretty cool guy. I do some pretty cool stuff. And I, I didn't care. I thought birds were for sissies. And so I didn't get it, but my kids are the same. I'm shocked. I thought I would be the world's coolest dad. And I'm just a big dork like every other kid thinks their dad is, I guess. <laughs> I went to one of those middle school career day things where they ask you to speak on your business. And I was a sitcom writer at one time. I thought that's going to be cool, right? I was going to have a table full of kids. Well, one table over was the FBI dad that showed him how to make a bomb or something. Nobody was interested in writing jokes. <laughs> yep. I'm the same. It's amazing. And you know, the old saying a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country. I've reached out to my kids' schools and said, Hey, you know, I'll come, I'll do these great presentations. I'll give everybody specimens. It'll be amazing. I never have a taker. It's incredible. Well, I did see you working with some tools. One of them, it seemed like you had a table saw and you were working with turtles. And I thought, man, that looks stinky and creepy. And it's very important that I state, and we haven't said it yet, but everything you work with is a reclaimed animal. It, it was already dead before you got it. So no animals are harmed in the building of this art. But if you've got 300 turtles, like you mentioned earlier, and you need parts of them. How are you not inhaling turtle dust at that point? Oh, I think I know which video you're talking about. And that was kind of legendary. Around here, gross smells are just a part of the job. If you can't handle that, you probably shouldn't work here. But that was a legendary one where literally all of my staff got together and said, hey, you move outside. We're not going to take this anymore. So I was kicked out of the studio to go. And I was using a steel cutoff blade to go through these turtles that I had preserved so that I could create this hard edge to this one specific uh, design that was kind of essential to bringing in a real inorganic and geometric flavor to this composition. And I mean, as it turns out, sawing through rotted turtles that have been dried is not fragrant in a way that, <laughs> that in a way that people are hoping for. So just FYI, in case anybody was going to try it. Well, I think what you do is amazing. And we know that everything dies eventually. And I think you offer them an extended life. Once they're in an exhibit and on display, in many ways, their narrative is much bigger than it was somewhere in nature if they were to just fall off and decay. So there's something magically transformative about the impact you're making on the viewer to do more work and that sort of thing. And I guess I would hope that anybody listening would Google your name, go check your stuff out, look at the books, go to Instagram, because you can get a lot from the images that way. But then if the exhibit is in a museum near them, I would just say they could spend a weekend there just being immersed in it. I really appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. One thing that has really been shocking to me, again, another kind of serendipitous surprise, and these come for all of us artists that are out there trying something new. I did not anticipate that people would go through these exhibits and they would be so emotional. I mean, it's almost daily that people call or write, or if I'm a fly on the wall, sometimes I'll go to the exhibits and or when we're setting up or after we've set up and I'm there for opening and just see people crying. And it's a daily thing that people just sit there in tears in these exhibits. What's happening is a connection is happening that people don't even know they need. They need to be either in a place that's somewhat reverent. I try to make the exhibits have a reverent feel to them where it's almost like you want to whisper. It's odd, but people have these really emotional moving experiences that to me is the absolute pinnacle of what I've been able to do. Nothing makes me more gratified and happier than to know that, that those experiences are happening.
they are sanctuaries in a different way. They're not a habitat where you see the animal moving, but they take the fear out of insects and they turn the focus on the beauty and the structure and the color and the design elements. And all of that, I think it's so much more magical than even these sort of other life worlds that are created by video games and things, which are immersive, but it's unnatural. Like when I watch a movie like The Polar Express, I think these aren't human beings. Like there's something creepy. They've somehow sucked the warmth out of Tom Hanks here. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. <laughs> That's hard to do. <laughs> Thank you so much for spending the day today with us. Do you have any kind of a creative trick or tip to get people just to open their mind to a new idea? Like if you're encouraging a young artist or photographer or somebody, what would you share with them? Well, a couple of different things. One, I've had the opportunity to speak in some different venues, universities and museums. And when I think about what to talk about, especially with my boys, I mean, we are a family of six, six out of six of us ADHD. And then in addition, there's some other challenges that we have. And sometimes it's really, really hard to decipher what your innate gifts are and what your innate weaknesses are. And people get them confused all the time. One of the things I say is, look, if you want to be creative, if you want to try something new, get some objective help to discover what your real gifts are. Everyone has, everyone has gifts. And if you can discern what those gifts are and you can build a life that maximizes exposure to those strengths and minimizes exposure to your weaknesses, you are going to build a happy, successful life. And I've said it to my boys a million times. They roll their eyes if they can hear me right now. But that's the first thing I would say is start with where you are intended to be. Start with your natural gifts and then be willing to take some risks. Work hard, like advice anybody would give. But those good calculated risks along areas where you are already have some strengths or already have some natural gifts, that's your recipe for success. Well, I think they can also go take a visit to ChristopherMarley.com and they will see why words like extraordinary and breathtaking, stunning, remarkable, moving, all of those words just immediately fall out of your mouth because you've never seen an insect or an octopi or a fish or a snake in this kind of detail that you with your brushes and your tweezers and whatever. The tweezers are funny because I think you must have been pretty good at the game operation as a kid. <laughs> I don't know if I was, but I think I would be now. Well, anyway, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing what you are and how you see the world. It's really informative to the rest of us. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will always hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under the savvy producership of Amanda Rosenberg, with sound editing under the steady hand of Marcus Siniskalki. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help us grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot .fun as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page Stepping on a ghost stages